Hello and welcome to today's podcast, Managing Bullying and Harassment Issues in Law Firms, Dealing with the Past, Realigning for the Future. Today we have a really wonderful panel of speakers. Rob Hind, who is HR Consultant and Chair of People in Law. Beth Hale, who is an Employment and Partnership Law Specialist at CM Murray. Ian Miller, who's a Regulatory Specialist at Kingsley Napley. And Sarah Chilton, who's a Partnership and Employment Law Specialist at CM Murray. Today, we've got six key themes for our discussion. The likely impact of lockdown and social distancing on bullying and harassment. Is the quiet word appropriate in handling partner conduct issues? And what role does mediation have to play in dealing with complaints against partners? How can firms empower HR teams to escalate and address partner conduct issues? What should firms do to support and protect complainants, witnesses and partners alike in investigation processes? What tools, systems and processes can firms use to realign partner behaviours for the future? And how can firms open up really close-knit teams, including lateral hire teams, to really ensure proper management oversight in the future? My name, in case you're wondering, is Claire Murray of CM Murray. I'm a partnership and employment lawyer, and I'm very pleased to be chairing this discussion, this podcast. So, panel, do we think that the current lockdown and enforced social distancing is going to have a major impact on harassment and bullying complaints. There's been some commentary that um, we're going to see a dramatic drop-off in harassment, which would be a good thing. What are your thoughts and experiences so far? I think there is obviously less scope for this, your classic sexual harassment situation. People aren't hanging out in pubs after hours. They're not going to um, work parties. Alcohol is becoming less of a, is obviously much less of a feature when people aren't in the same place together. But I don't think that removes the risks for employers um, altogether. I think just because people aren't drinking together, it doesn't mean they're not drinking. And I think that there is a real risk of, of things becoming less formal and an informalization of, of professional communications and that people will forget what standards have to ought to be applying to emails, to Zoom chats, to um, all sorts of communications where where that that sort of line between work and, and personal life gets a bit blurred. Mm. I think especially when you when we're seeing actually the, the the blur between working hours and personal hours as well, with everybody working remotely, I think that adds to it. There's a real sort of risk of losing those boundaries. I wonder as well if in fact, you know, there'll be some historic reporting of harassment. So albeit there might be an obvious decrease in in-person harassment, say because there's less alcohol and there's less parties and there's less events and travel. But actually people who might previously have found it too intimidating to report harassment by somebody they perhaps sat directly opposite might find that physical distance from the office something that allows them to reflect and and actually feel more able to report concerns and also because if in fact their concern about going back to the office is exacerbated by say a past harassment incident mm -hmm. then I actually think that might also prompt some reporting and certainly when Me Too really did kind of kick off a few years ago it wasn't just real-time harassment that we saw rise in terms of the reporting of it we actually saw a huge um, level of reporting of historic issues and historic allegations that had actually happened months and years before and so I do wonder if that might be a feature as well. Yeah I agree. 
I think, I think uh, being an old cynical HR director, I think uh, there might be a slight impasse at the moment in terms of reporting. I, I think I agree with you, Sarah, but I think there's a potential that we might be sitting on a bit of an unexploded bomb. And um, I think cyber, cyber bullying might be going on as we, as we speak through the internet and through webinars and uh, meetings like that. But um, I, yeah, I suspect that there might be a, an increase in claims as and when we all get back to work on a, on a phased basis. And to me, it seems that, I mean, we're asking people to manage in circumstances where they've had no training. A lot of people have, have huge pressures, domestic pressures in their daily working lives. And we don't yet know what the consequences of all that is. And it's not as if we even know what good practice is. So that, that I think will create, sadly, a legacy of this for some time to come. I certainly think on the, the bullying and the sort of perceived sort of intimidation, it's really hard, especially sort of virtually, to often judge how you're being read and understood, you know, online, so, you know, through sort of video cons. And I think it's, it's harder to, to appear empathetic and also to judge someone's reaction. So I do think that, um, you know, some some awareness for partners as to how to conduct themselves and how to have a sort of an empathetic style in their communications with their teams to ease those misunderstandings I think and misreadings could be really helpful. Are there other practical steps that firms should be considering now in terms of reducing the risk of harassment and bullying issue during lockdown and on re-entry? I think reminding people of the fact that this is still a risk and reminding people of their duties and obligations and what the policies say. Because I also think picking up on what Beth said earlier, that potential risk of things becoming more relaxed and people working in their homes are perhaps feeling less like they're in a work environment and therefore they might forget inadvertently that work policies and procedures still apply to everything they do. And it's a sort of new for a lot of people whereby you know normally when they're in their private home space they don't have to comply with the same set of rules that they comply with when they're in the office but actually what we're now saying is that in fact you do because you're actually working from that home space so I think a reminder and and making it clear the conduct that is expected of people whether they're in work or not physically in work but in the context of being in the course of their employment or in the course of being a member of a firm for example it's still the same level and standard that's expected of them if they're physically present. Right, so restating policies, possibly even training, specific training, but adapted to the fact that people are working remotely or working from home. And some policies may need to be updated. So, you know, yes, restating if those policies are appropriate, but some policies might not actually envisage the type of bullying and harassment that we're talking about or the type of work environments that we're talking about and so it would be worth I think before restating those policies and reinforcing those policies just making sure that those policies are still fit for purpose. Yeah I, I agree with all of those steps and um, I know a number of uh, law firms are building in that process into their return to work planning procedures so you know, on re-entry, there will be, in effect, a re-induction of, of everybody within the firm in terms of not only the new procedures, but uh, the conduct and policies as well. So I think it's a, you know, a belt and braces approach to it, best to be adopted. And are they looking at the mental health 
and anxiety aspects, which apply to partners as well as to other members of staff of coming back to work on how you behave yes. and how you conduct yourself with others. Yes, I think that has to be an integral part of it, Claire. And I know a number of firms are, you know, have been have excelled during lockdown in terms of uh, their approach to well-being and mental health. And I think it's just really an extension of that when, when people start to come back to work. Mm. So we've touched on the, the situation as it currently stands now, sort of under lockdown and, and kind of re-entry to work. But generally, where firms, you know, at any time are facing complaints by staff of uh, partner bullying and harassment, is the quiet word, is that still appropriate anymore? Is that, you know, kind of a light touch approach? I think an automatic reaction of senior management and HR teams to adopt the quiet word approach, but you know, it's still inherently dangerous and, um, and attaches risks by not following a more objective and formal investigation. You know, whether it be as a result of risk management issues, the, the, the mental health stuff that we've just described, or even potentially criminal sanctions. I think HR should always take advice in terms of the legal and the regulatory issues. And I'm sure Ian and the others will uh, touch on this in a minute. But HR really needs to spot the issues and uh, and not push back against potential further claims. And I I would always err on the side of caution and implement a rigorous and objective independent fact-finding investigation, which hopefully is free from senior management influence. And... uh, HR should certainly keep the open lines of communication with the CULP um, early and regularly, particularly if there is a, yeah, a sort of mismatch in terms of the complainant and the uh, person being complained about, if, it, if it's a member of staff against a partner. So I think HR are very on top of this and understand the need to escalate these issues, particularly in a regulated environment like a law firm. I think they're still often facing a lot of pushback from senior management who still think well let's just have a quiet word let's do this in a, in a much more kind of nuanced informal way we can bring this person round to behaving themselves but I know it's probably a, a useful point Beth for you just to talk about the type of issues that HR can raise with senior management from an employment law point of view and a partnership law point of view And then, Ian, perhaps you might say a few words about the kind of points that HR can raise with senior management from a regulatory perspective to really make a case for investigating and for taking these very seriously um, as compelling as possible. So I think that one of the key things is consistency, that if you're having a quiet word with one person when, when an allegation is made, what happens the next time a similar allegation is made? Are you giving rise just by virtue of that inconsistency to potential discrimination risk? You're treating different people differently depending on who they are and and who the allegations have been made against. I think there's a real risk of just exacerbating the situation, just saying and and, and making what is already, you know, that there's already been a complaint, there's already been a complaint made, allegations made against someone just having a quiet word with the person against whom allegations have been made might well just make the situation worse. They might then retaliate um, if they're not given strict instructions around that and there's not a sort of structure around how they're informed and how they're warned and how that quiet word is is done. I think, you know, there's a real risk of just frankly making the situation worse and, and 
making things worse for the firm down the line. And then I think the other thing to bear in mind is that you have a quiet word with someone once, six months, three months, whatever, a year later, someone comes and makes the same kind of allegations about that same person. They could very convincingly argue that the firm had not taken appropriate steps to look after their own, that person's health and safety, that the firm hasn't taken appropriate steps to prevent harassment in the workplace and to provide a safe place of work for all staff. And I think that that's a real risk as well, that if you, if you just have that quiet word approach, you, you're not doing all you can to protect people in the future. And, that, and that's a real risk for the firm. Thank you. And Ian, the regulatory issues that HR can reference really encourage escalation. That last point feeds in very well to that, that um, the, the SRA's enforcement strategy says that they are one of the concerns around firms is, is culture and certainly a, an area of particular interest for the SRA in the last couple of years has been sexual misconduct in the workplace. And you could easily see that the situation would develop where something happens, it's dealt with by a quiet word, and either the same or a similar thing happens later and is reported to the SRA, or perhaps within the same, same team, similar behaviours are become evident, at which point the SRA will start asking questions, will probably find out about the first instance, and will be asking questions of the firm as to why didn't it address the cultural issues raised by the first instance or or even just address the first instance because by not doing that that is one of the causes for the second instance so there are very strong regulatory reputational issues around avoiding the quiet word approach because it can literally store up trouble for the future I mean, Sarah, are there any circumstances where the quiet word could still have some place? And if so, are there sort of any minimum protections you might suggest? I mean, I agree with everything that's been said already. And I do think it's always a risk to take that approach. I think where perhaps firms need to think about, you know, how formal to make a process is perhaps around concerns about, say, the way that someone is handling for example, line management of somebody. So, you know, there are a number of instances where, for example, um, reports of bullying will arise from uh, someone not having appropriate training, how to manage somebody, uh, you know, things around capital letters and emails or emails being sent at the wrong time of day or night or night is more the, the issue. And I think things like that, it is possible in some circumstances to handle them in a less formal way and to have a quiet word with say for example the partner who's who's perpetrating that behavior because those things particularly uh, as a first offense if I can call it that are much less likely to result in potential serious legal issues albeit it's always going to be fact dependent and you should always think about whether this is appropriate but in that circumstance it may actually be better for everyone involved to deal with it on a less formal basis including the person who made the complaint and often someone in that circumstance will be concerned about the fallout and therefore often it, it can be better for them to not create a big sort of circus around something that they've just really raised as a fairly uh, informal concern. I think however if a firm is going to take that approach then they should still be documenting what they're doing and um, they should still be particularly documenting what they have said to 
that person and it might be a quiet word in inverted commas but that doesn't mean to say they shouldn't be recording the fact that they've had that conversation they've told that person what is and isn't expected of them by way of conduct and the way that they interact with others so that if you know as the other people have mentioned if another instance of that does happen or if something happens and it's the same type of conduct but it's much more serious the firm can evidence that they did take steps and there's always going to be the risk that someone will argue that those steps weren't enough, but there will still have been steps taken whereby they put a marker down and they told someone something wasn't acceptable and they tried to remedy the situation. So I think if a firm is considering that more informal approach, yes, be mindful of all the things we've discussed. And there are certain examples of conduct where it just simply will not be OK to do that. But if it is OK, there is still that reporting uh, documentation piece that needs to be considered. And that's going to be relevant both in terms of, well, a number of different levels, including often when we see partner exits. And it's an accumulation, a history of just very difficult behaviours. And there's literally no paper trail at all. And then there's there's a vacuum of evidence which then allows the exiting partner to be able to say, well, this is discrimination or it's whistleblowing. So just having that kind of gradual recorded paper trail makes such a difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that classic thing of, you know, a partner gets exited. Yeah, but everybody knows that they did this and this and this. And the partner's like, but I didn't know because you never told me. And look, there's no evidence that everyone knew about this. And therefore, this is clearly actually because I'm approaching 65 or it's actually because I've just had a period of absence related to, you know, mental health, which is a disability. So absolutely. That's the other reason is to protect the firm from allegations that the any exit or disciplinary sanction is actually for different unlawful reasons yeah Yeah, i think the fear of delivering difficult messages is uh, which is a sort of problem in all sorts of areas of employment law you know performance management and all sorts of areas where you say you know this person's been performing terribly for years but we don't have any record because their appraisals are all absolutely glowing it's just you know that those difficult messages do need to be delivered and documented so that you have a paper trail when you do then have to make the ultimate difficult decision it is worth mentioning as well that, that sometimes what displays bullying behaviors by by partners we do see sometimes that they are manifestations of underlying conditions that they've got themselves whether it's depression or anxiety so i think it's just obviously hr looking at it do need to consider whether there may be underlying factors for these behaviors as well uh, for the partners concerned but i think it also plays into from a regulatory perspective ian the importance of documenting decisions and why firms do and don't sort of take certain actions well, well exactly because again ultimately if, if something comes to the attention of the sra or you know, frankly the firm may need to report it the sra is going to start asking questions and if there's no documentary evidence as to why decisions were taken then clearly that's that's not helpful in, in justifying whatever position the firm finds itself in. So, you know, it's not just the internal and the, the employment aspect, but also the regulatory aspect that drives that. And just on a sort of related but parallel issue, when it comes to the SRA and the obligation on firms and individuals to notify the SRA misconduct, is there any significant difference if the main allegation that's made against the partner is bullying without any sort of sexual harassment aspect how does a firm decide where it falls on the line 
in terms of reporting and if there is or isn't a kind of a sexual or other discriminatory aspect to the allegation of bullying? I mean, I think they're probably, that topic of bullying absent sexual harassment is probably the sort of the most difficult area at the moment of deciding where the line sits. Obviously, it's a relatively low threshold for reporting, but how far behaviours amount to serious breach is hugely fact sensitive because there is a spectrum between assertive performance management, if I can put it that way, and actual bullying. And it is very difficult to identify an absolute, this is reportable, this isn't line at the moment. But I think certainly if a firm has serious cases, repeat cases, cases that certainly are amongst one particular team, then they are going to have to think very very carefully about whether they need to report. And just as a reminder, what is the reporting sort of threshold? What's the, the criterion? I was going to say, I don't have the willing exactly in front of me, but it's basically a reasonable belief that something amounts to a serious breach of the of the SRA's codes um, and and you know other sort of standards and regulations. But the test isn't that you have to be absolutely satisfied that it's happened. It's just that you have a reasonable belief that, that something has occurred. So the evidential threshold is relatively low, and then then you're thrown back onto trying to decide whether something is serious or not. And and there is extensive guidance in the SRA's enforcement strategy. And in, to, in relation to particular circumstances where you have to weigh up impact, whether it's repeated behaviour and those types of issues in deciding whether it's reportable or not. And it's frankly, it's not it's not easy to divide a clear line in, in this particular area. And we as a group often have a discussion about the timing of those notifications whether you have you should be going early or whether it's okay to wait until the end of an investigation and things have slightly moved on over the last sort of six months or so is it worth just giving us a thumbnail sketch on sort of time scale responsibilities because the evidential test has has been lowered by the new standards and regulations it, it's not possible to simply say well i'm going to thoroughly investigate this and come to some view on either the civil or criminal standard before I decide to report. Because if you have a reasonable belief that there are substantive allegations that are serious, that is enough. And so quite what what normally happens, particularly with larger firms, is is if they find themselves in that territory, is they will mention it to the SRA, report it to the SRA in various forms, whether through their regulatory manager or directly. but make clear that they're continuing to investigate and they haven't come to an absolutely final view, thereby ensuring that they've promptly reported it to the SRA. But equally, the SRA would expect them in those types of situations to provide them with sufficient evidence for the SRA to decide whether it wants to investigate it. And I've, I've certainly had cases of firms who've reported something to the SRA, said they're investigating, came back three or four weeks later and said, now we've investigated, this further evidence has come to light and we on the view that it's not reportable and the SRA's agreed and that was the end of the matter. And equally I think we've seen situations where the firm has been slow to report and the SRA finds out about it in the legal press when a dissatisfied complainant or witness thinks that the firm is not acting quickly or effectively enough. And that is the worst scenario. Either the either it gets picked up and reported in the legal press or the the individual complainant refers it to the SRA and therefore the SRA has heard from another route rather than the firm, 
it is quite difficult to then explain to the SRA why you haven't reported it. And that's because in a sense, the reporting decision is partly partly driven by circumstance and, and how will it look. So to bear in mind that it might be better to report something rather than the SRA finds out about it from somebody else. So basically, just pulling them all together, lots and lots of employment, partnership, discrimination and regulatory reasons, um, plus PR aspect that HR can draw on to really encourage senior management and firms who might be slow to want to deal with these sort of allegations, complaints seriously. Lots there for them to use and to, to be as effective in their persuasion. Um, just slightly shifting gear, but coming back to one of our main themes, Rob, if it's not the light touch, then why don't we just put them in mediation? Let's get them in a room, uh, either you know an internal or an external mediator, and they can just kind of thrash it out between them, and um, you know set the new kind of way of operating going forward. And how often do you see that? And do you think that's an appropriate approach to take? There are no doubt cases and situations where mediation might be appropriate, and you know there are pros and cons to, to mediation generally. But um, and I and I've used it successfully in disputes between members of staff at the same at the same level or within the same department, where they have been unable to resolve internal squabbles. But I think I would probably not suggested or make a referral to mediation where the whistle has already been blown or where there is a distinct mismatch between the level of member of staff or partner involved. I think uh, you know, pitching junior members of staff uh, in a mediation with partners can be rather intimidating for the more junior member of staff. And I think the firm and HR face key risks by not investigating cases of bullying and harassment in a, in a sort of more formal and upfront way. And obviously, you know, Ian and uh, Beth and Sarah have spoken about the, uh, the, the sort of uh, cultural implications of, of not doing that and the, the reputational risk of not dealing with the matter in a fair way. So as a HR manager, I, I would always advise HR and firms to be seen to be dealing with the, such matters in a sort of an upfront way and, uh, and rather linear. And we're gonna, I know we're going to be coming on to it later, but I think HR have got to try and avoid senior management influence and sweeping matters under the carpet, including suggestions that uh, mediation is involved in such cases. So I think you know, it, it's a cl clearer way to actually conduct a, a fair and objective review and the reputational issues if, if you're already if you're constantly seen as um, dealing with in terms of disputes in, in an informal way then that gets across the firm and th these things do have a tendency to uh, spread around the firm and, and reputations can be can be lost that way. Beth, Sarah, have you got any comments on the use of mediation this sort of early stage? I think you have to think quite carefully about the likelihood of mediation at this stage resolving the issue. I think where the allegations made are serious and as Rob has identified where there's a power imbalance between the two, the, the complainant and the alleged perpetrator, where there's a just a sort of real difference in, you know, where someone's just very unlikely to accept any wrongdoing and so, you know, the, the sitting them down 
in a room with a mediator is just not likely to resolve the issues that you have in front of you without first having done a, an investigation to determine whether there has been any wrongdoing. I think you, I would say really approach with caution using mediation as a first sort of step in this kind of process. It may be that having carried out an investigation and reached a conclusion, mediation is appropriate to keep both people in the workplace and to make and, and to sort of forge a way forward. But I think to use it as just a, as, as an initial informal kind of resolution of, of issues which haven't yet been determined, I think unless it's a more minor issue or as Rob says, where people are at the same level and it's, it's really kind of personality clash type issue, then I think, I think it's quite risky to use it. So I think, again, you risk exacerbating the situation. And there's this kind of like, you know, just get them in a room and let, kind of knock their heads together and it'll all be all right. And I think that rarely works in my experience. And the Equality and Human Rights Commission, actually, in their updated guidance on handling harassment issues, put in a, an interesting section there about circumstances where mediation can be effective and the stage of the process, etc. So if anybody's dealing with that kind of issue who's listening, it might be worth having a look at that guidance because that's quite insightful. Although it doesn't specifically address the situation in a regulated environment, which is always, you know, brings a difference. So we talked already about how, you know, these sort of issues can help HR to sort of escalate and address partner conduct issues. But what happens where there's been a promise of confidentiality? And, and that's often either by HR or it might be partner who's not involved has raised the issue of bullying or harassment to them. And it's been done on the basis of express confidentiality. You, know, you mustn't say anything, you mustn't do anything. But I, you know, I really feel I need to tell you this. Where does that leave the firm and partner in HR in terms of regulatory obligations, for example, Ian? I mean, a confidentiality agreement to keep things confidential confidential has no impact at all. So the SRA is entitled to get from the firm anything, say for something that's privileged, as as in the firm's privileged as opposed to client's privilege. And so if, if those discussions have taken place and it's been agreed that they are confidential, that would be an answer to a request for those documents from the SRA, which again comes back to the, is it the right approach? But also as you're creating documents, you've got to think about the consequences of, of having assured someone of confidentiality. You may not be able to deliver on it. Absolutely. We do often see law firm HR managers who they just feel like they're just stuck. They feel that they need to escalate and they need to do something about it, but they feel they've given this commitment. But I mean, I think this should be really reassuring for them to hear and for others within firms who are sort of facing these issues that actually the, your positive regulatory obligations require that these issues are escalated and dealt with, notwithstanding any confidentiality sort of commitment that you might have given. And I think it's probably just worth mentioning actually the extent to which these regulatory obligations apply to people who are within firms who are not solicitors. Obviously people who are qualified so solicitors, registered European lawyers as they continue to exist, registered foreign lawyers um, are directly regulated by the SRA in their sort of professional titles but the SRA also has powers over employees of law firms who aren't qualified um, and they have the ability, the ability to find them or to refer them to the Solicitor Disciplinary Tribunal. 
and also to make orders that they can't be employed um, by other law firms without the SRA's consent. So, so it's certainly not a case of if if you're certainly working within that regulated environment, you may end up being on the receiving end of SRA proceedings. You know, hopefully, it's a relatively small proportion that do end up in that position, but it's it is a, a, a real aspect of the regulatory framework. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So just moving on with some of our themes, in terms of where issues are raised and an investigation is prudently going to be implemented, commissioned, and then a process after that. Beth or Sarah, would, would you like to just give us an overview of what, what are the main steps that firms should be taking to ensure a fair process an outcome for basically all of the parties' concerns, you know, firm and they're looking after the firm's interest, but equally you're looking after the complainant, you have to look after the complainant, you're looking after the accused partner, and also there'll be witnesses. What does that process in broad overview look like? I think as an initial step, the firm will want to investigate. But before we even get to that, I think it's worth people just taking a step back and remembering that we are dealing with allegations now they may turn out to be well-founded allegations but they may also be allegations for which there's no um, evidence and so what we're dealing with are situations where we have to be very mindful of not uh, one jumping to conclusions and prejudging the outcome but also in not treating people in a certain way that damages their career or reputation when you can't come back from that in circumstances where you don't yet know where things lie and what's happened or what hasn't happened. And I think one of the things that we've seen go wrong is where everybody assumes guilt or assumes that someone's not guilty, for example, and, and acts according to that as something is progressing. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, of course, as a primary step, you shouldn't consider suspension because obviously you should consider that. And it will sometimes be appropriate to suspend uh, the person who's been accused you will need to of course check whether you've got the power to suspend them so in the members agreement whether or not you can suspend or not an LLP member and if you're dealing with an employee whether or not you can or can't suspend an employee so that's step one is to consider a suspension but if you don't have the power to suspend or in fact if you decide not to suspend there are other ways where we've seen situations where uh, people can have their position damaged irretrievably before anyone knows of an outcome. Obviously, if you are suspending, there are inevitably going to be a potential reputational issues for the person who's suspended, but it will nevertheless sometimes be essential to suspend in circumstances where, for example, you can't otherwise protect people from repeated conduct or where it's impossible to conduct a fair investigation through potential interference with witnesses, for example. So I'd say think about suspension, think about anything else you need to put in place to preserve the situation, to preserve the status quo until you can figure out what actually happened. And then the next step is to do your investigation. And as a primary step to that, it's think about what you want that to look like. Do you want it to be done by an external investigator or an internal appointment? And there's a lot of reasons to potentially use an external investigator in a law firm environment, often because you might be investigating the conduct of partners who are relatively senior, and it can be very difficult for a colleague in the firm to take an impartial view of the alleged conduct. So what you can do with an external investigator is appoint someone one who's got specialist expertise in these types of allegations which is also something that's important but also someone who doesn't have any preconceived ideas as to any of the parties involved and that can be really helpful 
a perspective to bring in to the situation. And I think then once you've got that up and running, you need to think really carefully about when you tell people things and, and when you deliver information and how you do that. So making sure that when you deliver difficult information to people, so that will be the accused, potentially to witnesses, potentially to the person who's brought the allegation to you because they may not want an investigation, they may find that very distressing, that you make sure you put in place supportive measures. So uh, potentially appointing a buddy within the firm, so someone that they can talk to freely about things, who's one of their colleagues, but also making sure that they have access to external support if they need it, for example, wellbeing support or psychological support. And so that's also a really key aspect to that. And that's for everybody involved, for the accused, for the potential witnesses and for the person making the allegation who may or may not be the potential victim. So you've got to, you may have a situation where there's bystander reporting. So that might be difficult for the person who's made the report, but also then difficult for someone who's been the victim of harassment, who gets brought into something without even having anything to do with it. So I think those are really important things to think about. And then the other difficult issues around investigations are and processes are around who you tell what to and when you do that. And I think just really carefully taking a step back and thinking about your obligations of fairness in the context of making sure that someone who's accused has got proper fair opportunity to respond to what they're being accused of. And so that means that they need to see evidence and they need to get time to respond and they need to be able to engage with the process and also making sure that that your data privacy obligations are covered off. So, so ensure that you're not unnecessarily sharing the personal data of other people involved in the investigation with other people, because that can cause unnecessary difficulties, but can also end up in potential breaches of data privacy obligations that firms owe to all the employees and partners that work with them. And then thereafter, you're looking at potential disciplinary process if it goes to that stage, uh, or potential remediation of the issues. So depending on the outcome of the investigation will depend upon whether a disciplinary process is appropriate and if it is then if you have a process then you need to follow that process. If you don't you need to construct a fair and balanced process and if you are looking at things other than disciplinary either because the allegations were not upheld or because it's actually not a disciplinary issue and it's a lack of training issue then you need to think about how you implement the remediation steps at the end of the process. That's terrific. Thank you. Rob and Beth, any additional kind of protections and support that you'd consider putting in place, you know, whether whether it's for the complainant or for the partner who's being accused or, or the witnesses? Rob? Um, I, think, uh, I think Sarah touched on most of the um, support there, uh, particularly the medical support. Um, there's possibility of occupational health assessment for the complainant, counselling and coaching and if they're off on sick leave, which is often the case in these cases, then offering a bit of bit of additional continued sick pay in addition to the company's sick pay. Appointing a buddy for them is, is a possibility and where possible giving them a give them a reassurance and um, that, yeah, that, that there will be no retaliation from from other parties involved in the uh, in the complaint and on the flip side you know, making the same points to the uh, person being complained about in terms of their conduct to just to ensure that there is no retaliation and victimization and just clarify particularly to the complainants that 
what they can and can't do and who they should communicate with and uh, who they should not be communicating with in the meantime. And I do think you raise a really good point. Like, I mean, often the retaliation it can be worse or also it can found genuine complaints, even if the original complaint wasn't sustainable. And you do see just through often lack of clear instructions from firms, obviously you mustn't victimise you mustn't try and contact directly or indirectly. So don't try and influence through back routes, which we see happening a lot. Don't withdraw from the person or the witnesses because now you're scared of what you're scared of these people and what they're saying against you. Just that withdrawing and effectively sending someone to Coventry or denying them opportunities and contact with you, that in itself can be perceived as retaliation. And I think you really do the partner a favour by setting out very, very clear rules and expectations in writing, ideally, as to what they can and cannot do and who they can and cannot speak to about the issues, you know, relating to the investigation and any follow on action that might flow from it. Yeah, I was just, just a couple of things to add. I think we've covered most areas, but I think um, thinking about suspension, as Sarah said, is really key. Um, but also if you if someone is suspended just remembering the length of time they're suspended for and thinking about how how often you revisit that decision and and if they are suspended thinking about the length of time they're out but also if they're not suspended thinking about as things develop and other other facts come to light whether you ought to revisit that so thinking both ways how long are they out for if they're not out should they be out Um, also thinking about um, I think what it, it's often a kind of knee-jerk reaction to someone coming and bringing a complaint to you to say, well, do you want to go and work from home for a little bit? And that's obviously less relevant now because everybody's working from home. But, you know, do you want to work from home? Do you want to stay out of the office for a few days? But I think that's something that should be done with quite a lot of caution, actually, because I think the risk is that, that per- then that person is out of the office. It's It's not a suspension, but it's you know, it has the same effect as a suspension in terms of their absence from the office and people talking about it and gossip and sort of the, the communi- lines of communication and, and them feeling detached from the workplace. So I think that's that that's something you shouldn't do just automatically. Sorry, is, is that in relation to the person who's accused or are you also talking in the context of the complainant just, I, I was just talking be... about the complainant I think both but I think I think quite often someone comes to someone comes to HR and says you know I've, this awful thing's happened to me um, I'm making these allegations you know it's a human reaction to say listen you're obviously upset maybe you want to go and work from home for a few days maybe you want to stay out of the office for a few days while you compose yourself while you feel better or whatever but I think actually that in itself can be a sort of can, could be treated as a retaliatory step and I think it's just you know, just think quite hard about the impact of that and the impact of anyone being out of the office for that period? Well, in terms of the current climate, I think what we might see is people thinking, well, I don't need to think about suspension because everyone's working from home. Mm. But I think just because people are working from home doesn't mean you don't need to think about that because you know, someone can persist in their interference with an investigation, in their continuing harassment of others from their home. Um, and I think, you know, people often think, well, if they're not physically having to be in the office together, that's not a problem anymore. But it, it might be. It'll be fact and case dependent. But don't kind of just assume that it's OK because everyone's remote. Mm. Ian, from a regulatory perspective in these sort of internal investigations and where you've made an SRA notification, I mean, what support is typically given by the firm to, say, the accused partner and, and also, you know, the complainant and witnesses 
in terms of the SRA aspects? See the firm giving you know support of any type or paying fees or what? What do you see? I mean, you do get varying levels of support depending on whether there's insurance and things in relation to partners and others who are involved. I think the big picture in terms of investigations as far as the SRA is concerned is that if you take the extreme example, you have an investigation that um, involves allegations of sexual misconduct or serious bullying. At the end of the investigation, the complainant leaves and the alleged perpetrator remains. The SRA is going to start asking some fairly serious questions about process as to how the firm came to that conclusion. So was it protecting a big billing partner or did it genuinely get to that, the end of that process having gone through various steps such as taking external advice and appointing independent investigators, etc., where it was an entirely understandable reason they got to that conclusion. So the SRA is not going to go so far as to say you've got it wrong, but if there isn't a sufficiently resilient process that underpins any decision, then if the SRA starts asking questions, then um, obviously that creates an issue for the firm. Okay, so let's look forwards. Obviously, some firms had to deal with these issues, but what about across the sector where firms are just trying to ensure that partner behaviours are realigned for the future so that especially coming back into the workplace is going to be a great opportunity just to reset expectations, make sure that partners understand the behaviours expected of them. What are the things that firms can be doing and what sort of systems and processes can firms and HR be thinking about to really help prevent, flag and deal with conduct issues and really realign behaviours for the future? Beth, do you want to kick off? I think the, the first place to start is your documentation, not just your policies and procedures, although I'll come on to those in a minute, but also your underlying documentation, your LLP agreement, your members agreement, um, your partnership deed. Thinking about whether those documents give you give the firm sufficient ability to deal with issues as they arise and to manage partner issues. I think traditionally firms have had in place policies and procedures for employees, handbooks for employees, but they don't have tools to deal properly with partner misconduct and so I think the first thing the first place to look is your constitutional documents the second place is your policies and procedures a lot of law firms have grievance and disciplinary policies and anti-harassment policies which don't expressly apply to partners and then you're starting off on the back foot because you have a complaint made and you have to first of all do that analysis as to whether the procedures apply to partner misconduct and if not how to deal with them and how and what steps to take next so i think having clear policies and procedures in place then as well for partners which may be uh, along the same lines as the as the policies that you have in place for employees but but maybe different in some respects particularly depending on your on your constitution and just think about how you can empower HR and senior management to have those tools ready and make those rules clear to everybody. So training, communication, making everyone, letting everyone know what is out there and what the rules are um, and, and how they apply to different categories of staff. I think there's a really interesting point there as well in terms of these partner policies and procedures, especially if you're in a multinational law firm and kind of trying to get some measure of consistency in terms of handling obviously subject to local law but handling these partner conduct bullying and harassment issues and also making decisions about whether or not it's okay for 
local offices to deal with local issues or whether the global firm wants to know about it. So, you know, kind of global management needs to know about this and whether, you know, issues should be escalated under these policies to the highest level within the firm so that they know at the most senior level that there are issues being raised, they understand how they're being dealt with and they can really ensure that they're being addressed effectively and not sort of just contained locally, which we see happen constantly, that things are just dealt with fairly discreetly and locally by the local office without the parent, the headquarters or global senior management really being aware of it at all until until after the event. That's really right. I think having a consistent approach and a global policy is really helpful. But I think you need to be a bit careful when you're preparing a global policy which purports to apply to all the offices all over the world in a multinational firm, that you're not sort of watering it down and you're not applying it to the sort of lowest common denominator, that it still has teeth just because it's a sort of document which purports to apply to everyone. It's not sort of just a really broad and not very therefore impactful. Yeah. And just picking up your point about the LLP agreements, it is amazing how many LLP agreements are still very generic in their partner obligations and also in their grounds for expulsion. So often, you know, when you're looking to deal with someone who's been accused of something and it's been decided that there are grounds for disciplinary action, actually the range of options are often very limited constitutionally. And also, you know, you're trying to bring it within a very generalised ground for potential expulsion instead of having very clear statements of expectations and obligations including relating to complying with discrimination, anti-harassment, anti-bullying policies, and that breach of those then give you grounds for considering exit or actions short of exit. Are there other sort of frameworks or processes that you as a group would suggest in terms of really realigning partner behaviours for the future in in law firms? Rob, is there? Yes, I mean, just... uh... In addition to the uh, you know, the formal documents and standards that uh, Beth spoke about, trying to get universal personal commitment to the standards of the firm and, and the firm's culture by everybody, not just partners, but, uh, but uh, staff, staff as well. And having open and transparent communications and processes across the firm does assist with this. Having seen upward feedback and input into partner reviews work very well, I can certainly recommend that. It does have the immediate effect of penalising sharp elbows at the top end and encouraging open and frank discussions, getting everybody in the partnership to commit to the standards of the firm. And in larger firms, breaking that down within smaller group discussions. So everybody is working from the same set of set of rules and standards. Can I yeah. add in the ethics word in that certainly the SRA's code of conduct says in its introduction that ethical behaviour should be embedded in law firms. And we have historically tended to talk about risk and compliance when when talking about the regulatory issues, but but the SRA is now very much talking about ethics. And what, what that means is that there's an SRA risk, but there's also a reputational risk around behaviours which may well have been acceptable 20 years ago, but they're not anymore. And training, reminding, embedding within the organisation, ethical behaviour and the aspiration to behave ethically 
in relation to client work, in relation to how you deal with your co-workers and peers, all points towards a firm that in many ways is more sustainable because it, it doesn't run those sort of reputational and risk issues that, that others might, and therefore is sort of you know, a, a virtuous circle. But I, I don't think people should shy away about talking about ethics. No, absolutely. I think it's, it is becoming much more part of just the day-to-day language now in law firms, certainly much more than it was even five years ago, I'd say. And that, that's a really great thing. And, and you hear it coming right from the top of the firm and, and down through the levels. And, and obviously, senior management do have to be seen to be communicating and behaving in line with everything that they are extolling, you know, in, in terms of, you know, these policies procedures, partner expectations, the training, etc. Senior management need to be sort of walking the talk themselves, otherwise it really undermines everything. But we do occasionally see examples of not necessarily behaving themselves, speaking themselves in a in a way which supports the policies and procedures and training that actually HR and senior management have otherwise been putting in place across the firm. What about how do we think that the impact of women and minorities and encouraging diversity, do we think that has a helpful role to play in realigning partner behaviours and changing the culture? I think it certainly there's certainly potential for that to be the case. And I think evidence suggests that on the, having women in the boardroom makes a difference to culture and to how decisions are made and just having a diverse not just to do with gender to just having a diverse um, management team diversity in the management makes a big difference to how to how diversity issues are dealt with more broadly in the organization and let's just turn to our final theme for our discussion today which is often these issues of bullying and harassment can come about or can be allowed to sort of fester because there's insufficient oversight of teams and that well may be because you might have an incredibly successful team they might have come together from another firm however many years ago and because they're successful because they're very tight-knit they're allowed to just get on with it and get on with their success their financial success but you can kind of start to hear rumblings of actually all is not well in paradise within that particular team and I just wonder Rob are there things that firms can do to really start to open up those teams without actually damaging what they have and undermining the success of what they have? Yes I think training and mentoring is important and getting your HR business partners out into those teams is, is quite important as well trying to break down the the mystique and the barriers that might might crop up in circumstances particularly where you've got a lateral recruitment of a, of a specialist team get them in front of the firm and other members of the firm at all levels to showcase not only what they do and talk about the results and the wins but um, you know explain what they do as well to to sort of break down those barriers and encouraging open discussion with those particular groups. And hopefully that way, even in complex areas of the law, you can try and make sure that everyone understands the work of the other practice groups within your firm. So you do break down that sort of mystique about a particular department. And I do think it's the job of the managing partner or members of senior management to really get in there and understand the team, make sure they've got proper oversight 
And I do think sometimes managing partners, they see a successful team, they just want to let it alone. Whereas actually, I think for the longer term interests of the firm and risk management sets, they kind of need to be willing to get in there and get some air in that um, group and just see what's going on and how, how to integrate them with the wider firm at all levels. Yes, yeah, I agree. I think it, very much the emphasis is, is on the core firm rather than the team being brought in because there might be a, a natural reticence for that particular team to get out there and communicate voluntarily to the firm. So I think it's for the, you know, the firm bringing that department in to open that dialogue and start the uh, discussions. And I think you're absolutely right, Beth. It's, it, it is now a risk issue. So I don't think it's possible to, to say, well, they're generating a lot of cash. They have their own peculiar ways of working, but that's nothing to do with us. If the firm's had certain warning signs about behaviours within that team and it has done nothing about it, and then something else happens that's perhaps more serious or just it's constant repetition, then the SRAs again go to ask, well, you knew about the culture in that team and you didn't address it. Why didn't you do something earlier? So I suspect going back sort of 10 years or so, many in management of law firms would be happy to leave the high-performing teams to run themselves. But I don't think that's a particularly comfortable position to take now. And so there's presumably the role of the CULP as well should be to be encouraging this kind of intervention from a regulatory perspective. Yes, but it's, I mean, it's difficult territory because it may not necessarily be on the back of something serious that's gone wrong, but just an observation of a number of ways in which the team relate to each other. It might be that there's a high tenor of staff at certain levels or regular drinking in the sort of pre-COVID world that, that led to certain stories about what happened on, on nights out. But those things just can't be ignored and hope they go away. It's the responsibility of the firm to try and change behaviours rather than simply to sit back and do nothing. Which brings us beautifully, it's almost like it was planned, to our last point as to what one practical tip would you each recommend to sort of help law firms, senior management and HR encourage good partner behaviours for the future? I mean, Ian, is yours kind of remove all alcohol? Um, Don't feel constrained. I was going to say, it's easy to say in, 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 in the COVID world that you can remove all alcohol because it, it doesn't occur. But I think... Be more questioning of culture just because a high-performing team behaves in ways that you're uncomfortable with. Don't just let it fester. Mm. You are going to have to look at it. And it, it's difficult, but it's probably easier to resolve than, than to deal with it in the storm of HR investigations, SRA investigations and the like. And you might be able to change people's behaviours without necessarily anything disastrous happening. Thank you. Beth? Well, I think one of my key tips is always be careful what you promise on confidentiality. I think there's a real inclination when people come to anyone, so HR, a partner, a colleague, anyone, to say it's fine, it doesn't have to go any further, I'll keep it quiet, it's between me and you, I just need to know what happened. And I think that is really risky from both an employment and partnership law perspective and, as Ian has flagged, from a regulatory perspective. So, yeah, that's my sort of mantra, don't overpromise on confidentiality. Lovely, thank you. Rob? <laughs> it's two really it's two i think being from a hr perspective being seen to handle investigate and sanction fairly and not brush stuff under the carpet and being subject to undue influence from the senior partners and senior management team is of paramount importance to me and that by by analogy means employing the best higher robust and experienced 
HR people with the confidence and uh, respect and recognition in the firm to be able to deal with these issues, being able to stand up to uh, senior management. Absolutely. I think that seat at the table is so important. And yes. Yes. where it happens makes such a difference. Yes, I mean, yes, we're seeing a number of firms now appointing chief people officers to you know, partnership status within the firms. So that's only going to improve the, uh, the process and the situation. Thank you. Sarah? Yeah, I, I mean, just to add to that, I think empowering the people that have to implement these things is so important. And it's where you really see a difference. I suppose what I was going to say and what I've been thinking about is around encouraging people to speak up. And so thinking about uh, making sure people know that they can speak up, will be supported, encouraged. Uh, think about bystander training to encourage people to speak out against unacceptable behaviour. But I think more importantly to that is once you've done that, you have to listen. So I think listening is really important. You know, it's all very well having your door open and, you know, doing the right thing. But unless you are listening to people's concerns, you're listening to the messages that are coming in about culture, you're listening to what rumblings are going on on the ground, then you're going to find it very hard to really tackle deep cultural issues. And a lot of the harassment and bullying issues arise from kind of cultural issues. So I would say encourage speaking up, but make sure that when people do it, you listen to what they've got to tell you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I just want to thank again our panellists in today's podcast. Rob Hind of People in Law, Beth Hale of CM Murray, Ian Miller of Kingsley Napley, Sarah Chilton of CM Murray, and again, I'm Claire Murray of CM Murray. Thank you so much. If you've made it to the end of this podcast, thank you and well done. We really appreciate it. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please like it and share it with your colleagues and contacts. We would really appreciate it. And we look forward to speaking with you at future podcasts and events. Thanks so much. Take care.